Good morning. Uh, my name is Andrew Bostrom. I get to read um, today's scripture passage. Um, this is the Lord's word. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose the reward. This is the Lord's word. Thank you, Andrew. And good morning again to everyone. Uh, Like I said at the beginning of the service, we're today wrapping up a series we've been doing in January, uh, focusing on what the vision of our church should be. In other words, what what should we want God to do among us and in our city? Uh, How should we want uh, God to use our church, uh, both in one another's lives and out in our community? So we've been looking at this uh, Matthew chapter 10 to hear what Jesus said to his original 12 disciples, who were known as apostles. They had a a very foundational role in the history of the church. What did Jesus say to them as he sent them on mission so that we can then uh, draw some applications uh, to ourselves? Uh, We are not, uh, we don't believe we are the apostles. We believe they did in fact have that foundational role that can't be repeated in all the same ways. But we also believe we're disciples just like them. And we've been sent just like them by Jesus out into the world. So though we might not be apostles, uh, the church is always to be apostolic, if you will. It's always to be like the apostles uh, in what we do in every part of our lives. And so uh, just to give a brief recap of where we've gone so far, we've seen a few things about Greater Hope. Uh, We need to be a church that has Jesus' view of our city. Uh, We want to view Mulberry the way Jesus views it. And not according to some other vision that we invent or that somebody else gives us for various reasons. Uh, We also want to be a a community that knows how to gather to Jesus as a rhythm of life. Like every week coming here to worship him and gathering in his presence. uh, Gathering together in community group where we're we're coming around the word of God and, and allowing Jesus by his grace to work in our lives. We also lastly want to be a church that knows how to go out for Jesus. We know how to step out into our daily lives, our our workplaces, our homes, our neighborhoods, our schools, not just there for ourselves and for what we can get out of it, but we want to go there for Jesus. We want to go there for his glory to shine his light like Tim just prayed for us. Uh, Last week, we saw that that's going to come with some dangers. Uh, It's a dangerous business following Jesus in this world. Uh, After all, he's the crucified Savior. And so if the one we followed got nailed to a tree, uh, basically last week we saw Jesus say to his disciples, you should expect also the same kind of treatment. But there are so many resources in God. Well, this week I want to wrap it up 
by looking at these last words that Andrew just read to us. And I think everybody here, here will agree. If Jesus hadn't been keeping it real up to now, he starts keeping it real uh, in verse 34. Isn't that right? I mean, Jesus has some really strong words. In fact, I think some of the words that we just read are some of the most offensive words, actually, that Jesus ever spoke. I'm sure the people originally listening to Jesus had some kind of thought in their mind. Is this guy crazy for the things he's asking us to do, the, th- the ways he's asking us to relate to him, the ways he's asking us to relate to other people in the world. And yet I believe there's a very important reason, of course, why Jesus is doing this. If I could group everything together in one category this morning, it's this. Here at the end of the instructions, Jesus wants to tell his disciples how they will know whether their mission is working or not. How will you know it's working when you go out for me? Now, it's not the the normal things that we might think of. Uh, In fact, uh, I would argue from the, the verses here that sometimes what feels like not working is actually what Jesus says is the proof that it is working, right? And I hope that that'll become clear as we get along. But the the main thing here is is disciples of mine, Jesus is saying, I want you to understand what a living disciple is going to look like. You're my disciples called to go into the world to make more disciples. What does a living disciple look like? How do you know that your mission is working? And I think the same thing can be said to us this morning at Greater Hope. How do we know two years into our life as a church? How do you know when a church is alive? How do you know when the mission's working? Or how do you know when a church is dead? I mean, just like, just like people, churches can be either dead or alive. Do you all agree with that? They can be dead churches. They can be living churches. Just like people, churches can be dying in the process of dying. Or like people, they can be in the process of thriving and growing in healthy ways. But how do you tell the difference? I know for me, a lot of times, uh, just the, the, the general uh, measurements of numbers, you know, is what comes to my mind, or enthusiasm, or sometimes we think the average age of the congregation and silliness like that is how you know whether a church is living or dying. Jesus says it's none of that. And he gives his disciples three pictures. Okay, I want you to look at your worship bulletin today. There are three pictures in these verses that Jesus puts in front of his disciples, which really symbolize or illustrate the different ways that we can take the pulse of Greater Hope Church or any church, and the different ways that we can pray that where we are deadly or deathly, that God God would come by his grace and bring us fresh life all the time. If you look down there at the folder, you'll see uh, the different things that we're going to look at. First in verses 34 to 36, Jesus shows us a sword. That's the first picture, a sword. We want to try to understand that. Uh, Then there in verses 37 to 39, he shows us a cross. We want to understand that. And then finally, in verses 40 to 42, he shows us a cup. And I want to tell you, if you understand each of those pictures, you can know how to take the pulse of a church. All right, so let's look first at the, uh, the first picture there in verses 34 to 36. Jesus shows them a sword. Notice what he says there in verse 34. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He wants them, when they think about his life, who he is, 
and what he came into the world to do, he wants them to think not peace, but sword. The way I want to summarize this point is a living church is a church. A church with a pulse is a church that knows how to take Jesus' message seriously, even though it cuts. We know how to take Jesus' message seriously, even though it cuts. Jesus says, I did not come into this world to bring peace, but a sword. Now notice, I'm probably already in this room we're thinking it, but wait a minute. We just learned the Christmas story. And isn't it true that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, praise the Lord, the angels came out and began to sing to the to the uh, shepherds, and they said these very words, peace on earth, goodwill to men. I mean, is that not what Jesus came to do? And in fact, that is true. All throughout the, the Bible and the ministry of Jesus, there's this huge emphasis on God's peace coming through God's Son into God's world. Peace is really part of what Jesus came to do. So why would he say, I want you to throw away your misconceptions about me bringing peace to the earth, and instead I want you to picture in your mind a a sharp two-edged sword? Why would he do that? Why would he want us to think of a dagger rather than angels singing to shepherds? And it's because of this. We are so prone to misunderstand what the Bible means by peace. We go right to the idea that peace is the absence of all conflict and confrontation. We think peace is just, oh, I'm okay, you're okay, let's all get together and get along because everything's okay. That's what we think peace is, don't we, so often. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, who were made out of the same stuff as you and I, so they have the same basic misconceptions about peace, he's saying, I want you to get that actually all out of your mind. If that's what you think peace is, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And here's the thing about swords, y'all. They do not leave things as they were. (laughs) When a sword is applied to something, it does not, that thing that it's applied to, does not, cannot stay the same. Isn't that right? Uh, You guys probably watch Forged in Fire, like I do. It's a great show, right? Uh, There was a while there where my son and I were watching it every day. Very entertaining show where they have a competition making knives making swords and at the end of the show they go to test everybody's sword or knife to see whether who's the winner and if you've seen the show you know how they test it they don't test it by just looking at it do they you don't test a knife by laying it on the on the table and examining it under a bright light you test a knife by stabbing things piercing things cutting things chopping things right carving things that's exactly what they do and whoever's knife does the best at that wins but i'll tell you even the loser knives even the dullest of the knives and of the swords and of the daggers that are made never ever leave the things that they're applied to the same once they're done with them what jesus is saying is very very simple but very very important for us i came yes to bring peace but it's not a swordless peace I came to bring a peace that comes from the confrontation of the creator of this world with this world. Because this world has gone away from the God who made it. And so when I come to this world, I come not with the intentions to just simply bless it as it is. God does not come just to sprinkle holy water on things as it is to keep it as it is. God comes to make things as they should be. And so what that means is Jesus' work in this world is always going to be absolutely radically disruptive to this world. People are going to look at it and they're going to say, I don't know if I'm in for that. 
I would much rather have a God who just came by with some holy water or came by with a little bit of blessing on the agenda I already picked for my life or that I already picked for my church or for my world. Instead, Jesus comes as a king with his own agenda, with a sword at his side, ready to pierce and cut and chop the things away from this world that do not belong in this world by God's design and by God's will, and to bring this world back right side up to what God had always intended it to be. And so Jesus says it there. I came to bring a sword, verse 35 and 36. Notice what he says. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. He's saying, my, my work is going to be so divisive, it's even going to divide the closest of family relations. I mean, you're not going to be able to be neutral about me if you really understand me. If you really get, I came to bring a sword, you can't just say, yeah, Jesus is just all right with me and shrug and yawn and walk away. You either have to love him or hate him. You either have to worship him or spit at him. You can't take a neutral ground. Because you see, Jesus comes as a king, demanding allegiance, demanding a a response. You're either for me or against me. My work is to fix the world, to pierce right to the heart of the problem, and to begin to do surgery on this world at the deepest level, so that all that is wrong with the world might be made right. Now, when Jesus there, this is just another thing for you to think about to help you understand what he's saying. In verses 35 and 36, Jesus is not making up that phrase, that sentence. He's actually quoting from the Old Testament. There in verses 35 and 36, he's quoting from a book called Micah in the Old Testament. Now, Micah was one of the great prophets sent by God. A prophet was a messenger. You could think of it as it was God's lawyer who was sent to Israel to sue them for the things they had done wrong. Now, the thing about Micah, 700 years before Jesus, is he was sent to Israel in a time where people thought there was nothing wrong with Israel. You've got to understand this to get what Jesus is saying. In Micah's day, people thought everything was all right in Israel. It was one of the most prosperous times in the history of the nation. It was one of the most politically peaceful times in the history of the nation. And yet when Micah was sent, he was not sent with good news. He wasn't sent with, uh, by God to say, you're okay, I'm okay, bless everything, everything's okay, let's just keep it the way it is. He was sent with a message that disturbed. He was sent with a message that says, yes, there are people who are wealthy and rich, but notice your personal lives. You're mixing worship with me with worship of so many other idols, so many other false gods. Look at your lives. Yes, there are people who are rich and who have lots of power politically, but you're doing it at the expense of the disadvantaged. Society is full of injustice. Society is full of idolatry. And so Micah says, there's going to come a day when God himself will visit you. And when he visits you, a man will be against his father and a daughter will be against her mother. That phrase comes right there. What's Jesus saying? He's saying something absolutely incredible that I hope everybody in here understands about Jesus. Jesus is literally saying, I am God. I made you. And here I am come to visit this world. And in my visitation, it is not just a message of, I want to be your cheerleader to help you get what you want. In his visitation, it is a message that confronts and disturbs. 
The lesson for us. What is the lesson for greater hope? Churches set themselves on the course of dying when they try to tamper with the message of Jesus. When they try to make Jesus a Jesus tailored to the tastes either of the people inside the church or of the people outside the church. Churches are living and alive when they allow Jesus to speak for himself because he's good enough to do that after all. And when Jesus speaks for himself out of his word, he comes for something infinitely greater than we could ever invent in its place. He comes not simply to confirm us in our brokenness. He comes to love us in our brokenness so that we could then be made whole. And the wholeness is defined by Jesus. So this morning, the question for us is, are we following the real Jesus? That's something that churches always ought to be asking themselves. Are we really letting Jesus speak clearly? Are we really listening? Here's the test of that. Do you, I'm speaking to you now as individuals, do you allow Jesus, do you believe Jesus is allowed to disrupt your life? (laughs) Do you believe that? I hope so. I hope we all do. I hope we as a church believe that. Jesus is allowed to come up in here and do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. To tell us things we don't want to hear. To ask us to turn away from and lay down things we don't want to lay down. To go to people we don't want to go to. To love people we don't really at first feel like loving. Jesus is allowed to command. He brings a sword. That's the first picture. The sword. A living church is one that takes the message of Jesus seriously. Now secondly... There's another picture there in verses 37 to 39. It's just as strong. It's the picture of a cross. Notice what he says there in verse 38. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And here the the basic principle that Jesus is getting across is living churches walk their faith out. The faith is not just something in their head. It's something that they do in their everyday lives by living lives of self-denial. Living churches live lives of self-denial as an expression of their faith. That's what Jesus means by, whoever will not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, we all know Jesus and cross are synonymous, right? Everybody knows that today. Jesus, cross, they basically, the cross is a symbol for Jesus. But guess what? When Jesus said this to the disciples, they did not know that, Right? Jesus had not died on the cross yet. He hadn't even told them he was going to die on the cross yet at this point. They had no idea. To them, all a cross meant was an instrument of capital punishment. It was a tool of torture. It was a shameful thing. Here's what one scholar who has studied the the life and times of Jesus very deeply. He says this, when the disciples heard about the cross at first, the only thing it could mean to them was a shameful, painful road to a dreadful execution. That's all it could mean. It was not a piece of jewelry. It was not a sign on the outside of a church. It was not even yet synonymous with Jesus. It was just the worst way to die anybody in the culture could imagine. And here you have Jesus saying to his disciples, if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing for my sake to take a shameful, painful road to a dreadful execution then you cannot consider yourself to be a faithful disciple of me. You can't consider yourself to be a living follower of Christ. I mean, do you see how shocking it is? What Jesus is saying? 
Verse 37, anyone who loves their father more than, more than me is not worthy of me. I mean, to say that today is offensive, much more in a culture that worshiped family, basically. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Verse 39, even your own life should not be counted something to be held on to if it, if it comes down to the choice between Jesus and your life. It says, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What gives Jesus the right to make these claims? Well, it's the fact that, as he just said, we just saw the fact that he comes as the king, the creator of the world, with the sword that made the world to rewrite the world onto the right path, right? That's the reason why he's able to do this. And so what he's saying is, you can know that you're truly following me. You can know your church is alive when faith is not just something you talk about. But when in, the, in your church, in your community, disciples, when you go out to make new disciples, when those disciples begin to really sacrifice for my sake, to lay down their lives for me, then you know it's working. Now you might think, okay, well, wait a minute. I, everything you teach, Stan, is all about how we're saved by grace. Grace alone. You teach it all the time. Uh, and it seems like here Jesus is saying it's the people who sacrifice the most or do the best good works. Who, who earn their way to be worthy enough for Jesus. And I want to tell you that's actually not. I'm going to show you in a minute how that can't be what Jesus is actually saying. Here's what I believe he's, he's really saying. Everybody's saved by grace, but he wants you to know grace cannot come into your life without changing you. Like radically changing you at a very deep level. In other words, the grace and love of God showed to you not because of anything you've done, just simply because of what, of what God has decided to do and the, the cost that he paid through Jesus on the cross, that's the only way we're saved. But once we're saved that way, we begin to love that Jesus who died for us with such a great love that we're willing to sacrifice for it. Y'all, what Jesus is talking about here is just simply love. The way you know you have faith is that faith works out in love. The book of Galatians says this very plainly, and it's one of the most wonderful Letters in the whole Bible, written by Paul. He says, faith works itself out by love. Faith makes itself known and, and visible by the way we love. And here Jesus is saying, it's the way you love me that tells whether you really believe in me. If you really believe that I came and my love was costly, I paid the highest cost that I could possibly pay to just have you always and forever in my love. If we really believe that, then y'all, won't we love Jesus in return with such reckless self-abandon? And so Jesus is saying that. You can know that a church is alive. You can know when love is real. I mean, kids, you even know this. I mean, think about what a superhero is when you watch superhero movies. They're, they're people who love others, right? They do a good job of loving other people. They protect them and defend them. Always in a superhero movie, and, and adults, we know this is not just true of superheroes. We know this is true of every one of us. When you commit to loving somebody, there's always going to become a moment. It may be small every day, little moments. It may be really big moment one time in life. But there's always moments where the choice is either me first or you first. Isn't that right? Always. Love always makes this choice. And the test of love. What a superhero does, what a, what a someone who really loves you does, is in that moment, be it small or be it big, be it daily or be it once in a lifetime, what they do is they say, 
you first rather than me first. That's how you know you love somebody. That's how you know somebody loves you. And Jesus is saying essentially this. I came and you can know I loved you because I chose you first, not me first. I laid down my life on the cross. I didn't consider my relationship with my father something to keep to myself. And so I stepped away into a broken world away from my father, so to speak, so that I could then take my life and give it up and pick up my cross and carry it for you so that you could have life. If that is true, won't you then have enough faith to walk that faith out in love for me? And won't that love for me then begin to look like my love for you? Won't you be willing to part with anything that might keep you away from me? That's why Jesus, by the way, uses the word worthy over and over. Anyone who does this is not worthy, or anyone who does this is worthy. It's important to know what the word worthy means. It's not saying this is the level you have to reach in order for God to love you and accept you. That's not what it means. It could mean that, but it's not what it means here. The word worthy means in step with, in keeping with, harmonizing with. Jesus says the sign of spiritual life is your life begins to walk in step with my life. The way you love me begins to harmonize with the way that I have loved you. Do you see it's really all by grace. Jesus is teaching us grace in verses 37 to 39. He's just teaching us the back end of grace, right? He's teaching us what grace begins to produce. It begins to produce a heart that is so radically in love that even in in daily small ways as well as huge ways, maybe in ways that might even cost me my life, I'm going to say Jesus first rather than me first. Why would I do that? Why would anybody do that? Why do people not do that? That's probably the better question. Why do churches, dying churches, lose that sense of love and zeal for Jesus? It's because we've forgotten how costly Jesus' love was for us. We forget it, don't we? The love and grace of Jesus just becomes something we assume. We water it down. We make it into this thing that God somehow owes us, you know? Like, of course, it's God's job to love. He just loves everybody. It, it costs him nothing. He's just what he does. And the reality of the gospel is it's not just what he does. It's not what he had to do at all. He could have done something far different than love me. But his love was a choice. And it was a choice he committed to. And it was a choice he paid the cost for. The question for our church and for us as individuals is, what wouldn't we kiss goodbye? (laughs) Is there anything we wouldn't kiss goodbye? Whether it's a person or a plan or an agenda or a goal or a desire, is there anything we wouldn't kiss goodbye if we knew that thing kept us from following Jesus, kept us from being close to Jesus? Wouldn't we want to let it all go? Jesus says, when you think of the church and the church's life, I want you to think of a cross. Not just my cross, think of your cross. The cross you're called to bear, that every single one of us is called to show our faith, to walk out the faith by living lives of self-denial. Now, thirdly and lastly today, uh, Jesus in verses 40 to 42 gives us the picture of a cup. So a sword, a cross, and then a cup. Uh, Look at what it says there in verse 42. Here's the cup. If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. 
The basic principle here is this. A living church is one that demonstrates the grace of God by welcoming one another in love. A living church is one that demonstrates God's grace, not just by loving Jesus, which we've just said, but also by loving one another in tangible ways. That's why Jesus mentions a cup, specifically a cup of cold water. Uh, This was a symbol. Jesus is using it as a symbol of hospitality, a symbol of generosity. I think he uses a cup of cold water because this is the thing that even the poorest of his audience could have related to. The poorest person, when someone comes to their house, might not have anything to give, but they could probably at least give a cup of cold water. And that cup of cold water would symbolize something magnificent in this time and culture. Hospitality and eating meals with people, sharing food and drink, was something far more than just simply, hey, I'm willing to tolerate you for a couple of hours while we eat a meal, which is kind of what it means today, right? Back then, to welcome someone in, to sit down and eat and drink with them, even over a cup of cold water, meant I'm not ashamed to be with you. I'm not ashamed for us to belong together. I don't care if anybody else sees that you're in my house. In fact, back then, if it was someone they didn't want, if it was someone they didn't think was good enough, they would not offer hospitality. It was encouraged not to offer hospitality to people that you wanted to exclude. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, in the community of the church, the way you know a church is alive is if that church has removed all exclusions. All exclusions. Welcome sinners to come hear about Jesus, he says. Don't turn sinners away. Don't judge that people for various reasons, whether it's their culture or their color, or the amount of money they have, or their status in society. Don't judge them and exclude them because of that. Welcome them all in. And then when people begin to profess faith in Christ, treat them exactly like a brother and sister. Don't rank people by importance within the church. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are a son or daughter of the Most High God. Therefore, very valuable. Therefore, worthy of anything that I have to give, whether it's a cup of cold water or whether it's something more massive than that. If God has given it to me, he's given it to me for others. Jesus is again saying the same thing he said when he talked about the cross. I want the way that I treat you to inform how you live. Right? The way I treated you, I welcomed you, even when you were a sinner, when you didn't deserve it. Therefore, I want you to Let that shape how you treat one another. Welcome each other as I have welcomed you. That's what the Bible says in in Romans chapter 15. Welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed you. And so Jesus says to his disciples, anyone who welcomes you, verse 40, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. Anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, my Father in heaven. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. In other words, You're rewarded by welcoming people according to their role. Well, here's how about this, Jesus says. If anyone welcomes one of these little ones who's my disciple, if you welcome someone simply because they're they're a follower of Jesus just like you, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. They will be rewarded not just by a prophet, not just by a righteous person. They will be rewarded by the God of the universe. Jesus is describing a chain reaction that ought to characterize the church. A chain reaction, right? He's describing how the dominoes should fall. God came into the world and welcomed sinners freely. 
We saw that in the fall when we walked through the parable of the prodigal son. The father welcomed the the foolish, reckless, sinful, hateful son back into the home. He, He threw a party for him. And Jesus says, I want you to know that's how God treats you. You can see it in the story of Jesus and the little guy Zacchaeus, right? The short man who couldn't see Jesus, so he climbed up in a tree to see him as he passed by. And even though Zacchaeus was a tax collector, which means not just that he worked for the government, but it means he was probably at that time crooked. He was known as a thief. He was known as a robber, an extortioner. And yet Jesus went up to the tree where he was standing, looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down because today I'm going to eat dinner at your house. You see what Jesus is doing? He's showing us how God treats us. Our reputation and our sin against God did not stop him from extending hospitality and welcome to us. And so the chain reaction continues. We welcome one another. And as we welcome one another, it's, it's us welcoming Jesus himself. And as we welcome Jesus, we're welcoming God the Father. In other words, you cannot separate how you treat God and how you think about God from how you treat and think about other people. You cannot do it. We try to do it all the time. We cannot do it. Dead and dying churches do it routinely. A living church knows there is a tight rope connecting our view and treatment of God and our view and treatment of each other and other people. And so we recognize the welcome the generosity, the kindness and compassion that God has put into our power is given to us so that we might extend it to other people. As one author says, the gospel comes with a house key. The gospel ought to come with a house key. If we're going to be a living church, we can't just talk gospel. We can't just talk grace. We got to demonstrate it by loving each other. Listen to what another writer says. Love is Christ's authorized way for us to be convincing to the world. Anybody in here want us to be convincing to the world about the gospel? Do you want people to come here and hear about Jesus? Do you? When we tell them about Jesus and when we show Jesus to them, do you want them to believe and be persuaded? Well, guess what? Our love for one another extended in welcome and hospitality is Christ's authorized way for us to be convincing. If we fail, this writer says, to love one another in ways that we actually start looking like Jesus then the world has the right to judge. The world has the right to judge. We know nothing of him. That cuts. Cuts like a sword. And yet Jesus cuts, I believe, in order order not just to wound, but to heal. And so this morning I want to ask us, do we know just how important community and church is? Do we know? In God's plan, I mean in God's plan, not just to me and you, but in God's plan. God sends us, after all, not just as a preacher, to speak words. Jesus sends us into the world to demonstrate through our life together just how good and loving and kind and welcoming God is. That's why we planted this church two years ago. That's why we exist today. That's why... I don't just go around the streets just preaching in Mulberry. I wanted to start a church. (laughs) Because I didn't just want them to hear words. I wanted them to see it. And that's y'all. That's what y'all are doing. It's important. That's what y'all are are called to do. To live this out. Not everybody is called to give speeches for Jesus. 
But everybody is called to do this, to love, even if it's just a cup of cold water. It could be as simple as that, some tangible way to show my faith can't stay just with me. It can't stay invisible. It has to be fleshed out. The grace of God breaks down barriers, all the barriers we normally put up. The grace of God opens up stingy hands like mine so that I can become generous to other people. Do you see that this morning? Do you see your need? Do you see how important the role is that God has for each and every one of you here at Greater Hope and here at Mulberry? I hope you do. I hope you'll look at how God has welcomed you. If this morning you're having trouble welcoming anybody else in your life, I hope you'll look at how gracious he's been. And this morning, if you're here, and this may very well be the case, if you have felt unwelcomed by the church, if you felt hurt and excluded and marginalized, I want to tell you I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. And I just hope this morning that you'll hear this. The welcome of God in Christ is greater than any man's welcome. And he offers that to you just as much as he offers it to anyone. And I would ask you, consider that. Consider that. And I believe what will happen when you consider and believe that, you will not be able to keep that welcome to yourself. And I would invite you, those who have been hurt by the church, I invite you, come aboard and help us do better. We're just two years old. We're still, the concrete ain't dry. We're still, we're still a toddler, like, bumbling around. Come and help us figure out how to love people better, how to love one another better. That's my plea to you. Think this morning. Is our church alive? Is it growing? Is it thriving? Look at the sword. Look at the cross. Look at the cup. Let's examine ourselves. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you so much for the clarity of the Word, God. Just how clear Jesus speaks. And, man, it is very offensive at times, Lord. It cuts our expectations. It, it cuts even sometimes what we want or desire. I mean, there are four or five things in the passage this morning, Jesus, that sometimes I, I, I wish you hadn't said <laughs> because of just how hard they are to, to take and to think about. But yet, Lord, I'm so glad you said them. Because, Jesus, you thankfully didn't just come to do what Stan McMahon wanted to do in this world. Thank you, Jesus, you came to do what you wanted to do. The things you and the Father planned long ago. Do that in our midst today. Help us to be a church of the sword. A church of the cross. A church of the cup of cold water extended to the person in need. We ask it in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.